so good to be back with you, church family. I can't say enough. You, you look good, by the way. Actually, I can't see your faces, but I trust you look good. Um, actually, you look like you want to rob me. This is uh, all new to me. Uh, but it is, it is so, so, so good to be back uh, with my church family. Um, I want to thank you for giving me a time to, to, to be on sabbatical. I use that time to just really study God's word, to be in prayer. Uh, kind of like Moses going onto the mountaintop. It gave me time just to connect with God in a special way. And I really do trust, hope, and ask that you would be in prayer, that God is going to use that so that I can come back. I can be a better leader. I'm still growing. I have a lot of things to learn. Uh, but I believe God's going to use it so that I can lead this church better so that I can lead you and your family into the future. And I'm excited for what God is going to do through us uh, as we link arms in these times that we find ourselves in and move forward to be the light of Jesus Christ in our community and in our world. I'm excited for what God wants to do through Edinburgh Church. I also want to thank the staff, by the way. They did a great job in my absence, and, and I specifically, yeah, give them a round of applause, please. Pastor Josh, Tyler, Bob, just, yeah, they, guys, they led you well. Um, I, uh, many years ago, my first job, and some of you know this, I, I started off at uh, working in a grocery store, uh, serving in the uh, dairy department the, uh, where you worked in a freezer, uh, putting in the milk and the yogurts and, and things like that. Uh, I would, you know, have to clean down this giant freezer using all these chemicals and stuff like that. But I'll never forget, it was my first job. I was 17 years old. And I got this vision. I was a brand new Christian. I had just given my life to Christ. Uh, it was, uh, some of you know my story. You know, I'm coming out of drug abuse. I, I've... Uh, just made a wreck of my life. Uh, I'm a high school dropout. This is, this is like daytime throughout the week. My peers are in high school. I'm working in this freezer. Brand new Christian, and, and I received this vision. I, it kind of freaked me out. I didn't know what it was at first. Uh, I wondered, is it the chemicals, you know, in this freezer that I was working with? And I, I came to realize, no, this was deeper than that. This was too real. It, it was more than that. In my mind's eye, I, I got this vision of a building, and it wasn't just a building. It was like I could see other buildings around us. It was almost more like a city. Uh, but my focus, the vision really focused in on this one building. And, and here's the thing. The building was in ruin. Uh, it was in absolute rubble. And I could tell the rest of the city was also in ruin and, and was lying in rubble. Uh, this was pre-9-11. So, you know, the, the, that hadn't even happened yet. But I could see this city. It kind of reminds me of that in hindsight where uh, th- this building was just absolutely destroyed. And then God spoke to me. And I had never really had God speak to me before. Uh, but he said it and it was very clear what he was saying. And the gist of it was he said, Brent, this is your life. He said, your life is in rubble. He said, but what's going to happen is you're going to make me your foundation, and I am going to rebuild your life. That was over 20 years ago. 
And I have seen God's faithfulness in that. I have seen God rebuild my life. And I tell you this story because this vision has returned. It returned while I was on sabbatical, but this time it wasn't just about my life. Now God was saying to me, your nation, your city lies in rubble. And I looked around and I saw the violence that's happening in our streets and I saw the buildings burning down and God was saying, your city is literally and figuratively on fire, all kinds of evils happening in your city. It's in ruin. And then I looked at the church. And God said, your church is in rubble. And I know maybe it doesn't seem that way to all of us, but I can tell you this, um, because of this whole COVID thing, we went from, you know, roughly 600 adults, hundreds of children on a Sunday morning uh, to now 100, 150, maybe a little more today, uh, meeting together, one service. He said, your church is in rubble. And I know for some of us, it's our own lives that lie in rubble. And like that building, it feels like our life has, to some degree, been absolutely wrecked. I know some of us have lost our jobs in this whole COVID era. Our businesses are struggling. I've talked to many of you here at Edinburgh. I knew things were getting real when Roasted Pear down the street, my favorite brunch place, my only brunch place that I know, but my favorite brunch place, that's gone. Kelly's is gone. Other businesses are struggling. Who knows how many are going to survive this? I know it's affecting many of our jobs, and I know some of us for various reasons, trying to figure out our kids and trying to figure out the situation, what we're going to do this school year. It's tough. And maybe somebody comes in here today and their life feels like it's in rubble. But here's the good news Here is the good news, because there is good news, because God says, just like he said to me over 20 years ago, if we will make him our foundation again, he can rebuild. In fact, he didn't just tell me he could rebuild. Here's what he did with my life. He said, make me your foundation. Your life will look different, but it will be better. And I believe that's true of our city. I believe that's true of our nation. If we will make God our foundation again, God won't just rebuild it. He'll rebuild it into something better. God won't just rebuild our church. If we'll make him our foundation, God will rebuild our church into something better. It might look different, but it'll be better. And God can take your life, and if you will make him your foundation, it might look different. But he can rebuild it into something better. And friends, this is why I'm so excited for us to jump into this Nehemiah series. Because the question is, how do we do that? And this is what Nehemiah is all about, making God our foundation again so that we can rebuild into something better. And so over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah together. And just to give us some background on, on the book of Nehemiah, you have to go, go back a ways. And I could go even farther back, but because of time, I can't go too far back. But I want to go back to Egypt. When Israel found themselves captives, They found themselves slaves in Egypt. 
And most of us are familiar with the story. We know the story. God calls this man, Moses, to come in and lead his people out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, into the promised land. This, this land of freedom. This land, you know, that we're told is going to be overflowing with milk and honey. And so um, we, we know the, the plagues come and, and, and Moses leads the people through the Red Sea. But before they go into the promised land, they have to go through the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God begins to teach the Israelites some things. And he gives them his commands. And he says, this is how you're going to have to live as my people. You are a, a chosen people. You are a, a, a royal priesthood. You're going to be a holy nation. And so God gave the Israelites some commands for how they were, they were to live. And I would encourage you to go home and read Deuteronomy 28. If you've never read Deuteronomy 28, I encourage you, maybe you want to write that down, okay, if you are brave enough. Because here's what happens in Deuteronomy 28. God says, if you will obey my commands, here are all the blessings I'm going to pour out on you. And I mean, it's these amazing, amazing blessings. I want to take you into the promised land. You're going to have grapes the size of volleyballs. I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's like your donkeys are going to be like the Teslas of donkeys, right? You're going to, you're going to take you into the promised land and you are going to have, you are going to be blessed. But... If you disobey, friends, I would make your children cry, literally. If I were to read to you the curses God says, I will send on you if you disobey my commands. I mean, it's brutal. If you're brave enough, go home, read Deuteronomy 28 for what God says. And part of that was you will be destroyed as a people. You will be destroyed. And so Israel makes them their way into the promised land. God gives them victory. They see God do miracles in their midst. They worship their God, and then they receive that blessing. But as they start to receive and experience that blessing, their spiritual temperature starts to lower. Their, their passion starts to wane, and they begin wondering, do, do we really need God all that much? Do we really need God? I mean, after all, look at all this blessing. Look at all this abundance. I mean, this could never go away. I mean, do we really need to make all these sacrifices to our God? And that eventually turns into decadence. And the people find themselves living in sin and idolatry and just completely turn their back on God. So, I mean, look at how blessed we are. This is here to stay. Does this sound familiar? This is our nation. Maybe this is for some of us, our very lives. We start to say, I don't need God. I mean, look at after all. I've got, you know, we've got, and then what happens? In the year 586 BC, the Babylonian army comes in and absolutely destroys the southern region called Judah. Sacking Jerusalem, the capital and carrying the people of Israel off into captivity. They leave a remnant, they leave some, but they carry the rest off to be slaves again, captives again, not of Egypt this time, but of Babylon. And friends, you can only try to imagine how horrific that scene would have been. Because I know sometimes we get the Sunday school story of what these things look like. And, you know, there's animals going into captivity and they're frowning, you know. It's like 
And you study what these ancient armies did when they came in. We're talking, I mean, they would have cut off the feet, cut off the hands of the warriors so they could never fight again. They literally had devices that were meant for blinding the leaders so that there could be no resistance. And they would carry these. And I don't mean to be graphic, but I want you to understand this is history. This is how brutal it was. And then they're carried off from their promised land and all the things they cherished so much to live as slaves again in another region, just as God said would happen. In Deuteronomy 28 and following. And so Israel finds themselves, the people of Judah find themselves in Babylon. And now fast forward over a hundred years and Nehemiah is born. This man, Nehemiah. And uh, we're told in chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Okay, so he's the cupbearer to the king. So what this means is uh, before the king would eat anything or drink anything, the cupbearer would sample it to make sure there was no poison in anything. So Nehemiah, he would take the cup before the king would drink it, he would drink, make sure there's no poison, no COVID, I don't know what was in this, make sure there was nothing in it that was going to hurt the king. And so he had a pretty cushy job. He got to live in the palace. He had all the comforts of the palace. Except for the fact if someone tried to kill the king, Nehemiah would be killed. It's a reminder that he was still a captive, a slave. Now, this isn't Babylon anymore. This is Persia, okay, because the Persians came in and, and, and attacked and, 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 and overtook the Babylonians. But the Israelites are now captives in the same region, which is now Persia. This is where Nehemiah finds himself being the cupbearer to the king. And so then we read, picking it up in Nehemiah 1, Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Okay, remember, there's still a remnant back in Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's asking them, how are my brothers doing back in Judah where the exiles lived? A few other groups had gone back. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. But it's a pretty small group that's back in Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So what was happening is uh, these other surrounding people groups continued to come in and sack Jerusalem and keep them from rebuilding their walls. And every time they would try, they would burn it back down so that the people would be weak and they could come in and plunder all the stuff of the exiles that were living there. And you can only imagine what else they did to the people. Absolutely humiliated back in Judah and Jerusalem. And so then in verse 4, we read, When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah, he does two things. We see kind of two things going on here. First, he cares. He cares. He is concerned for his people. He is concerned for Judah. He's concerned for his homeland. He's concerned for what is going on. And I just wonder, do we care? 
When we look around and we see what's happening in our nation, when we see what's happening in our church, I just wonder, do we care? Church, do we even believe that evil still exists? That evil is real? That evil is at work in our world and in our nation. 39 kids just rescued from sex trafficking. Many of those kids kidnapped from their parents in Georgia. And I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. We see what's happening. We see what's going on in our streets right here in Minneapolis. Yes, we have to figure out how do we deal with racial reconciliation and re racial injustice that's still at work. But then we have groups like Antifa, which is just trying to stir things up. And I personally, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on, consider them a terrorist group at work, not helping the black movement, but making the black movement suffer. That's what I believe. And yet I know people here who have had Antifa hiding things in their community, in their neighborhood, things that were going to be used as bombs to create unrest in our city. Does evil still exist? If it doesn't, then why did Paul say, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God? so that you can take your stand against Satan's schemes. Goes on to tell us our battle isn't with flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual. Church, do you see why we matter? We matter. Because we are in a fight. This isn't a battle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle that every single one of us is called to engage in. And I just wonder, do we even care? Nehemiah cared. The second thing I see Nehemiah do, though, here is he prays. He fasts and he prays and he goes to God in prayer. Why? Because Nehemiah realized something. He realized that if we don't pray, nothing happens. If we don't pray, nothing changes. But when we pray, the impossible becomes possible. Nehemiah knew this was a monumental challenge. He's a thousand miles away. He's got to get permission from the king. He's got to go back. He's got to take people. He's got to try to fight off the surrounding people groups and rebuild the city walls. A monumental challenge. But Nehemiah realized something, that when God's people pray, the impossible becomes possible. And so Nehemiah prayed, and he prays a powerful prayer, and we know how the story ends. He's able to accomplish this impossible feat of rebuilding the city walls. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to study this prayer, and I want us to look at this prayer. And maybe for some of us, this could be even a template for how we could start praying. And so we're going to see four things that Nehemiah prays, sort of four stages of Nehemiah's prayer that I want us to look at today. And this is the first thing. We see in Nehemiah's prayer. We have to recognize who we pray to. We recognize who we are praying to. See, listen to this prayer. Verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, <laughs> who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he recognizes who his God is, this great and this awesome uh, God. I don't know about you, but there are many concerns that we have today going on in our lives. And especially as we try to navigate all these challenges in the COVID challenge, 
And it's easy to start finding yourself worrying. But I remember going into a prayer meeting one time. And as I was in this prayer meeting, someone just started to pray. And they opened up the prayer meeting by saying, God, you are all-knowing. You know all things. You are omniscient. You know all things. You know everything that's going on right now in our world. You know everything that's going on in our community. You know everything that's going on in our very lives. You care about our individual fears. You care about our anxieties. You care about our worries. You know everything that we're dealing with globally, but also individually. And then this person went on to pray, and God, you are all present. You are everywhere. Think about that for a second. That's amazing. God is able to be with each and every one of us in a special relationship, just as if you were the only person in the world. <laughs> only God can do that. Only God can. Remember, God, you can have a relationship with me like I'm the only person in the world. You truly are God. And this person went on to pray, and God, you are all powerful. There is nothing you can't do. You truly are a great and awesome God. You're not just all knowing. You're not just all present. You can do something about our circumstance. You can do something about our situation. And as I heard this prayer, this powerful prayer, just recognizing who God was, what started to happen is my God got bigger and my problems got smaller. God got big, my problems got small, and I started to have peace. It started by recognizing who it is we pray to. The second thing that we see in this prayer is Nehemiah repents for sin. Second thing we got to do is we got to repent of our sin. He goes on in verse 6. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. He confesses his sin. He repents. And you notice he doesn't just say like the world sins, the sins that are out there. He says our sins, my sins. I confess I am a sinner and I need grace. See, Nehemiah realized something. He realized that we can run from God because of our sin. We can run, but running leads to ruin. Repentance leads to restoration. We can run, but running is going to lead to ruin if we will repent. Repentance will lead to God restoring us. And friends, I've had to repent of some things. I've had to stand before my church family and confess sin in my life. I haven't arrived. I am not perfect. I am still a work in progress. I had to confess there was a season of burnout where I was copying sermons. And I had to say, I, I, I ask for your forgiveness. And I had to ask my church family to forgive me for that. I'm a sinner. And so I, I had to ask for forgiveness and I had to humble myself. When I think about the church's sins at large, and not just talking about our church, but I think about sins of the church, and I found myself thinking about, you know, not, not that there aren't very godly 
Catholic churches out there, because I know there are and I have friends who are a part of them, but I also know that the church has a, Catholic church has developed a stigma of pedophilia, and it's, it's something that uh, we've all heard about. It's something that the world is aware of, and maybe it's just something that the church needs to, to not try to sweep under the rug, but needs to repent for. I mean, no wonder people don't want to go to church today that are out in our world. No wonder. Would you want to go? Why would you want to go? If that's the story you're hearing, well, maybe somebody needs to come out and say, we're sorry, we messed up. We've got to do something about it. Because God's not just a God of forgiveness and grace. He's also a, a, a God of justice. We've got to step up and do something about this. And then I think about Protestant churches. And there are many godly Protestant churches. I believe we're one of them. But then you hear about them raising money for projects and pastors embezzling that money. No wonder people don't want to go to church in our culture today. And maybe it was a time where the church needs to step up and say, we are sorry for our sins. We are sorry for not loving people. We are sorry for not doing what's right. We're sorry for not showing grace where grace was needed. It starts with us. Before we point our fingers at the world, we've got to confess our own sins. And we've got to deal with our own junk. My daughter, Callie, uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, she wanted to take a ride in, in my car, my Kia Spectre 5, all right? She had never been in daddy's Kia. She's used to driving around in mommy's luxurious SUV. She said, daddy, I've never been in your car. I want to go drive in your car. I said, all right, hon. I mean, she kept begging me. It's like, if you want to. So we got in the car, Logan and Michaela were with. And so she's there cramped in the backseat. She had never been in a car where she was so cramped in the backseat of daddy's Kia. And there's also a little bit of a smell because I've had this car since Logan and Michaela were babies. They vomited it in it. I never got it properly cleaned. And on a really hot day, you start to smell <laughs> certain smells. And so I'm looking back at Callie like, this is what you wanted. You wanted to get in daddy's car. And I'm seeing the excitement wane. And we hadn't even gotten to the neighborhood across our street when she said, daddy, can I get out of the car? Now, there was a park there. And so I said, okay, we'll stop over at this park. And when I parked, there was a garbage truck coming down the street picking up garbage. So I actually had to pull up just a little bit so the garbage truck could get there. And as we're walking to the park, Callie looked back at the car and she said, Daddy, do you think if you leave your car there, the garbage man will take your car away too? <laughs> Daddy, your, gar your, your car's garbage. This is what she was saying to me. She doesn't ask to get in my car anymore. And see, I started to wonder if maybe there's some things we need to take out to the end of the driveway so that it, too, like garbage, can be taken away. Maybe some things seemed fun at first. Maybe some things seemed like a good idea, and there was an excitement, and we found ourselves dabbling in something, and we found ourselves sinning in some area of life justifying it some way, justifying it somehow, but maybe it's time now that the church stepped up and said, we're going to repent, we're going to carry it out to the garbage. And we're going to get rid of it. And I know I talk about this sin a lot, but I, I'm going to bring it up again because I believe it is infecting and affecting the church and the potency of our ministry. But friends, we've got to deal with pornography in our culture today. We've got to deal with pornography in the church today because if you look at the statistics, most people, in, it is a sin that even many of us in the church struggle with. And listen, I just need to say it, pornography, it's evil. Man, I need to remind us it's evil. And I know it's something that women struggle with too, but when you really look at what happens to these young girls, you look at the average age, by the way, of a, a woman who will make porn is 22 years old. What did you know at 22 years old? 
Most of them who make a porn video will never do it again because it's so traumatizing. And when we give in to that sin, we implicitly support it. We support the exploitation of these young, young women. And so I just want to look at you men primarily. I know women struggle with it too, but I want to look at you men and call on you. Will we take this sin out to the garbage? Will we stand up and start living out our God-given responsibility to protect the innocent, to protect the young, to protect those who don't know any better? Will we step up and live out our God-given role to be men who look like Jesus and don't lust but love? Man, will you join me in that? Because it's a struggle for me too. It's a struggle That's why I need brothers and accountability partners and people like you to challenge me as well and say, no, we will not give in to the evil of our age. We will push back. We will say no. We will be a light in our our world. I don't know about you. I want to be more like Jesus. Amen? Church, I know just saying no to it isn't enough. Some of us need to actually get some help because you're addicted. You might need to find a counselor. You need to get an accountability partner. Uh, I would even encourage you, write down the name Caroline Leaf if you're taking notes. Caroline Leaf, she is a uh, Christian, but she's also a neuroscientist that has a 21-day program that's a brain detox. I would recommend it to all of you who are struggling with any kind of addiction. I believe it could help you. But friends... The world isn't going to change if Christians don't step up and repent for their sins. It starts with us. Third thing we see in this prayer is God reminds God of his promises. Nehemiah reminds God of his promises. Uh, first, verse 8 He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Going back to Deuteronomy. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people at the farthest horizon, he says, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I will gather them there. I will gather them and bring them back. This was the promise Nehemiah is claiming. This is what he was, he was holding on to. Friends, there is power when we, when we remind God of the promises he's given us. How do we fight worry? We fight worry with the word. We fight worry with the word of God. We fight worry with the promises he's given us. Some of us, we don't even read our Bibles. We don't even know what those promises are. You don't even know the amazing promises God has given you. And I know I, I, I quote this scripture, it seems like just about every sermon I preach, but it's because this, this promise in my life is so powerful, it's been so helpful. I mean, friends, there was a time in my life when I was young where this, this kept me from, from, from contemplating suicide, to be honest with you. And that promise is Jeremiah 29, 11. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And I know so many of us were familiar with that promise. We've heard that promise. It's a popular Christian. You know, some of us have it, you know, on a t-shirt or your, your, your coffee mug or, you know, you've got it on a magnet on your refrigerator or a card. But do you know when God gave 
the Israelites this promise. It wasn't in a time of blessing. It wasn't in a time of obedience. It wasn't when Israel had been good and faithful. God came in and gave them this promise right after they had been ripped from their homeland and carried into captivity. And they're dejected. They're depressed. They're feeling like they had blown it and they had lost everything. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, For I still know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not do you harm, to give you hope in a future. Are you hearing the hope in the heart of our God? If you're coming in today and you feel like a loser, if you're coming in today and feeling like you've blown it, if you're coming in today and feeling like your life is completely in ruin, you need to hear Jeremiah 29, 11, the heart of our God who says there is still a hope and a good plan for your life. God says, I've done it before. You've seen the miracles I've done in your past. What makes you think I won't do a miracle in your life again? If you will recognize who I am, if you will repent, my promises still stand because I am a faithful God. We remind God of his promises. And this brings us to the last thing that we see Nehemiah do. He, he requests to be part of the solution. Nehemiah wants to be part of the solution. Verse 10, he says, they are your servants. And your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord. These are your people. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Who delights in revering your name. And then just with this line, he says, give your servant success today. By granting him favor in the presence of this man. Talking about the king. He's the cupbearer. He has the ear of the king. He says, God, let me be part of the solution. And I know some of us, we wonder, what could we possibly do to be part of the solution? What can we do when we see what's happening in our world? Maybe we even see what's happening in our church or whatever's going on around you. What could we possibly do to be part of the solution? And this got me thinking, if you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people. Jesus is feeding 5,000 people, and you remember, he's like, feed them. He tells the disciples, feed these people, just feed them. And there's this boy who has basically what's a Lunchable. And he's like, use that Lunchable to feed the 5,000. And they're like, Jesus, are you crazy? Like, what are you talking? We know you come from on high, but we didn't know you were high. How in the world are we going to take this kid's Lunchable and feed 5,000 people? What are you talking about? You remember what Jesus says? He says, give it to me. Give me what you got. Christians, this is where it starts. It starts with you and me saying, no, I don't have much to give. I don't have much to offer, but Jesus, I do give you what I have. And if we'll just give Jesus what we have, our time, our talents, our resources, you remember what Jesus does when they give him this Lunchable? He gives thanks for it. Jesus right now sitting at the right hand of Father, every time you give him what you have to give, he gives thanks for you. He gives thanks for what you have to offer. And then, what does he do? He hands it back to the disciples. He doesn't just multiply the Lunchables. If he had done that, there would have to be no faith. Oh, here it is. Jesus has done it again. This is easy. 
No, he hands back exactly this one launchable back to the disciples and then just says, start passing it out. And as they start passing it out, there just continues to be enough. There's just enough. And if they go to the next family and they dole it out, there's enough. And then there's more. And then there's more. And then there's more. And there's more. To the point where there's even leftovers that they themselves, the disciples, get to enjoy. That's why I love what Pastor Robert Madu says. He said, God works through us as we simply interact with others. That if we will give God what we have, God will work through us and give us what we need simply as we interact with other people. Whether that be people at work, whether that be people in your neighborhood, whether that be right here at Edinburgh Church. If you will give God what you have, he will work through you simply as you interact with others. In church, I believe we're in a time where we need God to start working through us. He's not going to work through you if you don't give him what you have. A few weeks ago, uh, I was, couldn't find my car key and I needed to get somewhere. And so uh, I started tearing the house apart to find this key. And, uh, I, you know, I, uh, turning over cushions, looking under the couch, checking my kids' rooms, the toy boxes. I could not find this key to get to where I needed to go. I even went into my wife's purse See, that's going to take a miracle right there if that's where that key is. I mean, I'm in this purse trying to find the key. I'm like, I had to tear the house apart. I could not find this key. Finally, it was somewhere where I had left it. It was so obvious, and I was able to get to where I needed to go, but I had to tear the house apart. I had to stop everything I was doing. Nothing mattered until I found that key. We are living in a time where I just believe Christians have to stop what they're doing. We've got to get rid of the distractions. We've got to stop being so entertained. We stop caring about what's going on in the world. And we have got to seek and find our great and awesome God. Because if we don't do that, nothing's going to change. If the church doesn't turn back to God and make God our first priority, I'm telling you, nothing is going to change. And I read to you earlier, Jeremiah 29, 11, but did you know that there's a condition that comes with that promise? There is something that God tells us we have to do if we wanna lay hold of his good plan for our lives, for our nation, for our church. Verse 12, he says, then you will call on me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, church, all of your heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. Church, my challenge to us is this week, today, Let's get rid of the distractions, the things that don't matter, and let's go to God in prayer until we find him. Amen? 
until we find him, until we can say, God, you are my God. I hear you. I know you're there. I know you want to do a work through me, in me, through our church. Let's stop what we're doing. Let's stop playing games and let's get real with our God. Let's stop everything we're doing because only when we find God can we get to where we want to go, to where we need to go. Without prayer, nothing will happen. With prayer, the impossible can become possible. And if we will make God our foundation, he can rebuild us into something better. I believe that and I hope you do too. It starts today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do wanna seek you out. We wanna know you. We wanna know your heart. For too long, God, we've been dabbling in sin. We've been turning a blind eye to evils that are taking place in our nation. But I'm just gonna humbly call upon you right now to flood this place with your presence because you are the great, awesome, and amazing God. We recognize who you are, the God who can do all things. And God, we also know that none of us are perfect. We all have sin in our life, things that need to be dealt with. And so God, I'm just gonna pray, would you deal with us? Would you deal with us? Could we open up our hearts to you right now? Every single one of us, wherever we're at, just take a moment to say, God, I need to repent of this. I need to turn from this. God, I confess this sin in my life to you. Will you help me to overcome it? Will you help me to move on beyond this so that I can be more like your son, Jesus? And God, we remind you of your, your great promises. You promise us to restore us. You promise to show us grace. You promise to heal us. You promise to bring us back out of captivity when we will do that. But God, we also want to be part of the solution. We don't want to live in fear. We want to live by faith. And so God, I'm just praying, give us faith as your church. Give us faith as your people. And would you use us to do miracles, miracles in our community and across the world. And we're going to pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. We're going to give you our worship today in the powerful name of Jesus. We're going to let you use our lives, all of us, in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.